Welcome to Informed Aging, a podcast about health, help, and hard decisions for older adults. I'm Robin Roundtree, a former family caregiver, and I've worked for home care. Now I work for the Alzheimer's and Dementia Resource Center. With me is my co-host, Edith Gendron. She's the executive director for the Alzheimer's and Dementia Resource Center, a positive approach to care certified trainer and consultant, and a former family caregiver with well over 30 years of experience in the industry. The thoughts and opinions expressed belong to Edith and I, not our wonderful employers and sponsors. If you want to get mad, get mad at us and not at them. Before making any significant changes in your life or your person's life, please consult your own experts. Today, we're talking with a guy who knows a lot about the world of dementia. We will get into his long bio right after this. Senior Helpers is the only home care agency offering a revolutionary new way to approach senior care the Life Profile Assessment. This data-based app is a crucial tool in helping seniors age safely and successfully at home. Combined with our proven in-home care programs and trained caregivers, Senior Helpers Life Profile is leading the way to better outcomes for our clients. For more information, log on to SeniorHelpers.com. For over 37 years, the Alzheimer's and Dementia Resource Center ADRC, has served as a Central Florida-based grassroots nonprofit and community resource center. They are dedicated to providing support and hope for families and individuals caring for someone they love who is living with Alzheimer's disease or other dementia-related illnesses. ADRC empowers caregivers with the knowledge, support, skills, and strategies they need to help them confidently prepare for the challenges that lie ahead. To learn more, visit the website ADRC cares.org. We're back with Josh Freitas. Now, I can't read everything that you've done, okay? But currently, currently you're the Vice President of Program Development at Certus Senior Living. You oversee memory care philosophy and initiatives throughout the company. That's pretty amazing. It is pretty cool. Every day, something new is to be learned. And you're an award-winning memory care program developer, researcher, and author. Your two books are? Uh, The Dementia Concept, as well as Joining Grandma's Journey. Wow. And what is driving your passion? I think it's seeing the the true difference. So uh, each week, there's always kind of this unfolding of something new. So I actually live in a community a few days every other week. So actually- live in a community. So it's an all dementia community and I have a bedroom. I have two neighbors and they always come knock on my door. We get coffee. But seeing the world from the perspective of somebody with dementia really opens your eyes. They see it completely differently than us. Wow. Is that something you ask your staff to do at times or just kind of tell them what you've learned from the experience? Yeah, our staff too. I always say that we should be uh, having our residents be our friends first and then we care for them second so that we can have that person-to-person interaction. But the way that you and I even wake up with an alarm clock might be very differently than somebody with dementia. So for example, not having that time or space and time continuum changes throughout the disease process. So actually slowing down and eliminating that thought of time and where we are and meeting the person where they are makes a huge difference. So getting our staff in that mindset, it's not, hey, it's morning, got to get up, do this task, do that, but just offer a cup of coffee and then see where their conversation goes. Wow, that's how I want to start my day. Offer me a cup of coffee and then I'll think about it. <laughs> well, even something as small as that, like we have a research division. So it actually shows that if you use an alarm clock for somebody with dementia, you have more sundowning and you have more behaviors. So having them wake up to their favorite song actually can change the whole 
domino effect throughout entire day. So something as small as that with research that costs no money or just opening the shades has a different somatic response. So these things cost no money, but have a huge impact for those with dementia. The biggest challenge is removing ourself and our perspective and walking in the shoes of somebody with dementia. All right. So I just want to make sure people understand sundowning, if you don't know, is agitation that tends to happen in the afternoon, late afternoon. Oh, it happens with a lot of dementias and it's very frustrating because there's no quick fix. But instead of waking up with an alarm, wake up with music that they love, it can make a significant impact on that. Yeah. And only because I love to take the opportunity to share stuff too is sundowning. Even if a caregiver is living at home, if you put your pajamas on two hours before the sun goes down, that person with dementia, if they see that, it's a visual trigger to release melatonin and actually help with sleep cycles. Throughout that process, you can reduce falls, you can improve uh, daytime alertness, but then also reduce some of that behavior. So if you're struggling at home and medications might not be the first option, just put pajamas on. The a little caregiver, bit. not the person the caregiver. living with. Yes. Oh my gosh, that's so smart. What else do you have, Josh? <laughs> Everything. Okay. I can testify to that. We use this book a lot. Um, the one that particularly color, oh. you know, in lime green. How black is cruel in the world. Oh, totally. <laughs> yeah. And some small stuff that Edith just even mentioned is like even a contrast toilet seat can reduce falls so you don't have a broken hip at home. Or we even noticed. No, okay. Put that to me if I'm going to Home Depot. What am I shopping for for the toilet seat? You want to have a light foam green. Green is one of the more prevalent colors as we age. So uh, having that as contrast against a tile works really nicely. Black isn't always the best color because it can be perceived as scary. Mm. Um, so having that light foam green, you can also see when it's closed or open so that you right. actually reduce the chances of somebody going to the bathroom on the toilet when it's closed. So to preserve dignity, allow them something that's easy and friendly to understand. Okay. So instead of the white lid and what's the seat, cover? Seat. Right. Yeah. The that goes itself. with the bowl. You right. want it to contrast with the rest of the toilet. Yeah. And there's some weird stuff too. Like uh, Home Health, I worked with the Home Health Agency a few years ago and they tried to glow in the dark toilet seat. And I was like, that is crazy. But they actually had great outcomes because one is when they woke up, it illuminated the bathroom. Oh. It also pulled the attention. You usually wake up because you're hungry or you have to go to the bathroom. First thing you see is that toilet. So it automatically triggers you. Oh yeah, I need to go to the bathroom. So it reduces some of that that chance of an accident. So even some things that we think are peculiar could be really great for people with dementia. Amazing. So what about food and plates? Yeah. So um, red will stimulate appetite. There's a lot of literature that shows it's about 33% will increase that. It provides contrast, but the color red actually makes you salivate and makes you want to eat more. Dark blue will suppress the appetite by up to 26%. Now, I always say this and people always say, well, well, can I do that too? For a neurotypical person or somebody without dementia, it's only about 6%. So it's not, it's not as big of a right. uh, change, but that makes a big difference. Also, there's a lot of literature on the, the colors, but also the presentation of food. Make sure food looks like food because uh, you go into some of these gourmet restaurants and things and the person might not be able to navigate exactly what that food is. So keeping that in mind, I've seen some really great stuff, and you probably can test to this, is food molds where people yep. need like pureed food that they can actually take a steak, puree it, gelatin it, and make it look just like a piece of steak. Oh, wow. Yeah, yeah. it's pretty cool. Pork chops, bacon, uh-huh. yeah, eggs. Bacon. Sorry. <laughs> Easily distracted bacon. by bacon. <laughs> Especially Irish back bacon. Okay. All right. <laughs> Note to self for Christmas for eat it. <laughs> So Josh, where did where did all this come from? Because you you are so passionate about learning 
I think it's about the residents. And like even I've been going through my own kind of reevaluation over the past few years and I've, I've grown in my career, but trying to not lose that bedside manner. And it can be tough with reports and running and managing, but taking a step back and actually sitting with residents at lunch or taking a moment to actually navigate someone's challenging day with them really opens the eyes. So for me, I've just worked with, originally I got into this as a music therapist and I loved every second. And then from there it was just one spark after another. So I always say creating, walking into the world of somebody with dementia has opened my eyes to see how privileged I am. So really it's helping people with dementia advocate for them as much as possible. So it's a little bit of the advocacy side for me, but then also changing what I can change. Um, and we have an industry right now that's really challenged from COVID and sometimes we don't get the best the, the best look on things. So really taking a step back and seeing what I can change. But what I've learned is I wouldn't be here today without the residents. So I have a resident hiring committee, everyone from our corporate team to frontline staff, a resident with dementia sits by my side and interviews with me. Wow. And yeah, to see their perspective is very different. And the one thing I want people to walk away with out of anything is people with dementia can contribute so much. Yeah. Um, even my dissertation for my doctorate work, I actually had it read by residents and they ripped it apart. One of them was actually a dissertation chair, a professor. And even in his dementia, he, he was like, I have dementia myself. And he would rip apart the stuff that wasn't from the perspective of somebody with dementia. So we can learn so much from people with dementia and the way that they think is a little different too. And society doesn't seem to be too on board with that thinking. Not at all. No. My favorite thing to roll my eyes at is, well, you know, they can't learn anything. Mm. Right? Yeah. <laughs> and I always say something very simplistic like, oh, well, the next time you're in assisted living, go during mealtime and just sit randomly in any chair and see what happens. Right, <laughs> that, that's they will tell you to get out. They <laughs> learned what chair was theirs, right? And it's very simplistic. But yeah, yeah. And so much of the society, I think, overlooks people with dementia. And I think that finally we're to a point like Europe for big time would incorporate and allow. And I feel like we've kind of shunned, but now we're finally to a point where there's people are participating even with dementia, running in five Ks, or still working and being open, saying, "I have dementia." I just met with a lady. Uh, three weeks ago, and she's still working. And mm -hmm. she didn't want to tell anyone at work. She was nervous of being fired. And she eventually did tell somebody at work. And I'm so proud of her. She's still advocating for herself, put safeguards in place. And they have an agreement that when the time comes, she can't do it. That's a different conversation. But she's actually building safeguards in place. And she's an incredibly smart woman. So, so yeah. just looking at it like a disability rather than, oh, you have this, you're done. Go sit in the corner. Yeah, and I would even say, I know it sounds weird, but call it an ability because I feel like there's also new perspectives. I've seen people that maybe didn't have the best family dynamic and now they get dementia and it actually slows down and they reconnect with their family or try different things that are new. I have a, a person that I, I work pretty closely with now that um, had some some complications with alcohol and for years couldn't find the right fit. Now he does. He runs programs. He has a job within us. He does all of these things and he's reconnecting with family. So it can also be a new ability of change and kind of how we process the world too. Wow. I love this. I love yeah. this. Now you could talk to Josh all day. I'm serious. Okay. <laughs> well, we don't have all day, yeah. but I know you had some research into wandering. 
So if you've got a mom or dad or a spouse at home, what do you need to know about wandering and dementia? Sure thing. So um, wandering is that there's a very high, high risk that they will wander out and wander somewhere. But there are ways to kind of manage that. Some people put a black rug in front of the door. Not the biggest fan because it can be perceived as scary. In most cases, in my opinion, people will end up going to the bathroom on that rug thinking it's a hole. So I try to avoid it. But dark spaces, for example, if you have limit, limit the amount of lighting you have at night in those rooms with exit doors, people with dementia typically don't like darker spaces. So you minimize that chance of them walking out. But I also think Apple tags have come a long way, tiles is um, going out in public with safeguards and not restricting. I find that actually, and I'm not saying this because I'm not giving advice, but the people that actually still go out and still have a sense of community actually wander less than those that are locked up and at home. Those are the people that want to get out all the time. Uh-huh. We see it in our communities too. The people that go on all the outings, are the, the residents that aren't saying as much, I need to get out, I need to go home. They actually feel like they have connection with the outside and they like their alone time too. So I feel like trying to allow that autonomy within a safe environment, but then other things, sensors on the doors, uh, different different things like that can reduce it. I also keep in mind that there's two types of wandering, with purpose and without purpose. If somebody's wandering with purpose or trying to get out, they're about 60% more likely to actually get out and try to walk away versus that person that just needs stimulation. And also I feel like if you want to reduce it with lighting is illuminate areas of the house where you want people to go to. Most of the time people wake up, they're hungry, you need to go to the bathroom, illuminate your bathroom, illuminate the kitchen. So as they're walking through the house, it pulls their attention, they can get something, have water on the counter, have snacks on the counter so they don't have to dig through things. Most likely they'll go back to bed. That's amazing. Yeah. Amazing. And have you found that, uh, is there any help in research that if somebody has wandered, that they're going to do a specific action? Usually it's to get home or they need to get somewhere or they're looking for somebody. It's always got a, my, my opinion, most of the time there's a purpose behind it. So if you can figure out why they're trying to wander. I see a lot of times people will revert back when they thought their spouse was still with them, but they might have passed away a few years ago and they go looking for them. Mm-hmm. Or an animal I see a lot. I need to go get my dog. I need to go get this. Or they just, they, they don't associate their house with their house anymore. And I actually tell people all the time that home is not always a physical structure, it's a feeling. So once that feeling of home is gone, sometimes they will wander away. We see it all the time. People will say, I want to go home in our communities. And they're actually asking to go um, to their room. We actually had a family member bring their loved one home because they were asking. And I said, this isn't home. Bring me back. Mm. So you can actually see that home is more of a feeling. And I think it's more where you feel comfortable versus the physical structure. Okay, so if it comes time to to put your loved one into memory care, mm-hmm. what advice do you offer for that transition? For me, I think it's visiting a place more than once. Uh, it's hard to make a decision in one visit. So I would say you should go in and base it a little bit on feeling too. How do you feel? How do people talk? How do you talk to residents when you walk through a community? But I also think visiting at different times of the day can make a big impact too. So visiting in the morning and then scheduling to visit at night too to see how that that building kind of goes through. Also ask if you can talk to some staff as you walk through. I think some key things is staffing, turnover, uh, training is a huge opportunity because you could have a bazillion staff, but if they don't know what to do, it's no good. But you could have people that have what we would think is not much staff, but because they're so well-trained, they have a great program. So I think it's basing it on the feeling, going through and asking the right questions. But also, this is a family, I don't want to say disease because it's not, but a family condition. 
is it doesn't just affect the person with dementia, it affects the whole family. So what services do they have for you? Mm -hmm. So support group, coaching, do they have staff that is willing to touch base with you? How do you get communication? I think that you have to approach this as what's a good fit for you too. Because if you can't take care of yourself and feel good about the decision, you're going to go through uh, shame and guilt. Every caregiver does. But find ways that you can cope with that and see if there's services along the way. Some good services I've seen people come up with is they will have a therapist that treats the person with dementia through psychotherapy, but they will also talk to the family member too so that they're getting therapy along the way so they can cope with those changes. That's amazing. Actually, as you were talking through, a lot of different thoughts ran through my mind in the beginning when you were talking about, um, I'm going to say the intimacy of the staff is, or the team, as it relates to the people that live there, your residents. And that felt very Bill Thomas-like to me, changing, aging. Was he any inspiration to you at all? Yeah, I think there's so many great people out there. I would hate to say that any of these are just mine. But I think one thing is you see is culture change. And I think you see a person-centered. So like Tom Kitwood's a huge kind of foundation of that. And I think we see a lot of ripple effects with validation therapy and person-centered or patient-centered. But I think that I've been influenced by all of them by reading. But one thing I have to say is treat people as a person before the disease is the biggest thing I I think we can solve. If you treat people as a person before the disease, you can solve a lot of issues because a lot of times we say, oh, they have dementia and we don't, we stop listening. So we have to get Mm -hmm. back to that listening. So I would say, yeah. The other thing that I heard you say made me think when we talk about a team working well, offer a cup of coffee instead of like, come on, let's go. You've got to have a shower is the excellent training, but time to enact the skills taught and that's one of my concerns in the greater world. I, I'm asked to come in and do some training. We do person-centered, very uh, support, dignity, independence. And then I find out three months later that, well, yeah, okay, fine, you came in and taught us that, but they didn't give us time to do it. You're talking the difference between 15 seconds and 90 seconds. We aren't talking an hour. And I think that's the culture change is you can't just start with just the caregivers, but you need you need the entire company's buy-in. So like I know for even me, I work at the home office, but we have a staff of four or five people. And we literally, when we're in, we are with the caregivers. We're watching transfers. We're participating in helping with it. We're helping feed. We're helping have lunch with residents. So I think you need that type of culture change because you can tell a caregiver all day long, but if they're not meeting their quota, you really need the person that's building their schedule to see it through the perspective of someone with dementia and say, hey, we're going to be um, engagement focused. We're not going to be task focused. So if Mr. Smith doesn't get up till 10, he doesn't get up to 10. That's right. That's okay. Um, but I also think exactly what you're doing is tapping into their past history too. And like, if you see that someone was a night nurse, let them have a different sleeping pattern. So yeah, that person might only have five, six people they're waking up can spend time versus having to feel like they have to wake up 10 people right away and be so task oriented. But you can teach that all day. But if they don't have the support of the company, then it's just going to fall flat. It's going to be kind of this friction. So that's why I feel like you have to get in front of the entire company to get buy-in. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Absolutely. One of the things that we do is if we're asked, if I'm asked initially to come in and do training, I, I want to talk to your ED. I want to talk to your administrator because here's my criteria for you. You have to agree to these things. Love that. You know, and one of those things is you are going to give your team enough time to practice and reinforce what 
they're being taught today. And I think you just nailed it too. The ED of the leadership of that community sets the tone for the entire community. So if you see that ED going out and having lunch with a resident or like one of our EDs just brought a, a resident to a hockey game because he was a hockey coach, when you see that stance, it can ripple down through that, that whole company. So Yeah, and it has to. But yeah, culture change. Absolutely. 100%. Yeah. What would you think if a, if a family member asked to interview the executive director when they were touring? I think it's a great idea. I think if you... I. I feel like the EDs that I work currently with right now, they always make an effort to stop in to make sure that they meet the family so that they have a face to go along with it. So I feel like those are the things you want to look for is an ED that is going to be near you. So when you have time and questions, you don't want somebody that's going to say, no, I have a closed door, but somebody that says, come in and talk to me anytime. I love it. Well, we're going to have you back whether you like it or not, because I think you have a lot more to share with everyone. Josh Freitas, your books are The Dementia Concept and also Joining Grandma's Journey. He's the Vice President of Program Development at Certus Senior Living. Thank you so much for being here today. Thank you for the opportunity. Absolutely. Please make sure to subscribe to our podcast. Leave us a great review. The name of the podcast is Informed Aging. Tell your family and friends about us as well. You can find us at facebook.com slash informed aging. Today's episode was recorded at Digital Broadcasting's podcast studio. That's it for now. We're looking forward to our next visit.